Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Will Charles and Nicola Johnstone of UniServices, which commercializes the ideas and intellectual property arising out of the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Will is the Executive Director of Commercialization at UniServices, where he's been since 2005. During this time, UniServices has transacted over 185 licensing deals, started 31 companies, and raised over 80 million in venture and seed funding for these companies, and successfully exited a number of them. In addition, Will has set up the Trans-Tasman Commercialization Fund, an Australian 30 million seed fund with four Australian universities, and sat on the investment committee of the fund. Will is also the director of a number of startup companies. Additionally, Will is set up and is responsible for the direction of Return on Science, which is part of the Ministry of Business, Innovation, and Economic Development's Commercialization Partner Network. Will has been a speaker at a number of international technology transfer events, including Autumn and BioEurope. Nicola Johnstone is the head of intellectual property at UniServices. Nicola and her team provide intellectual property advice to the University of Auckland staff and students. She and her team work with researchers, students, university spin-out companies, and investors. Nicola has an electrical engineering degree and a master's of engineering management from the University of Canterbury and a bachelor's degree in law from the University of Auckland. Nicola worked for many years in a law firm specializing in patents and has worked with many large New Zealand companies and SMEs advising on IP strategy and the protection of inventions. And with those extremely impressive backgrounds, welcome to the podcast, Will and Nicola. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for speaking to us today. Yes, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you both so much again for each taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. And Will and Nicola, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can each of you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at Uni Services? Yeah, so I'll, I can probably start with that. So, um, yeah, I've spent my career. I did a um, got a background degree in biology, physiology, and pharmacology, and I've always been interested in the idea of application of science and. And, and how you make that commercial. And the way I did that was to join the pharmaceutical industry and I worked up through um, various sales, marketing, and then line management roles at various different biotech and pharma companies, also medical publishing as well, a little bit in there. Um, and then before I came here, um, I was in South Korea um, with a large multinational and decided I didn't want to be an expat anymore. So I came home and um, you know, I, I, I was looking at a various number of things to do and had this experience of commercialization or working in a business side of science and R&D. And um, so, yeah, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to uh, take the role here at that time. And it was just me, the emerging sort of commercialization team at the University of Auckland um, at UniServices, part of the University of Auckland. And so... That's now grown since I've been here for nearly 17 years in August. <laughs> um, seems too long, but there you go, 17 years in August to a team of 18 um, that, uh, that, that, that looks after um, the transfer of intellectual property and ideas into typically startup companies nowadays um, and invest in those startup companies to get them going and out of the university. So my background, um, I did engineering and a, and a master's at university. And again, I was very interested in technology and ended up working, sort of taking a job in a patent attorney firm. 
So I worked for 15 years in um, patent attorney firms and, you know, as, as a patent expert, as a patent attorney, um, helping lots of uh, companies to protect their inventions and worked with startups and sort of bigger corporates. But I really wanted a change and I thought it might be good to go in-house and work closer with a you know, research institute. Um, and so, yes, about eight years ago, I was lucky enough um, to find that role at Uni Services, and um, I think I'd be hard pressed to go into back into a firm um, <laughs> environment. Uh, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy working with Uni Services and working really closely with um, our researchers at the University of Auckland. Well, I think you're outnumbered. It's two patent attorneys uh, to one here today with Nicola and I, so uh, you might be in a little bit of trouble. So, Yeah, we I've often been talked to my colleagues about what a collective noun of patent attorneys is. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a prior art or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. So, well, I know that the research is at the heart of the University of Auckland and that for the last two years in a row, which is really impressive, the university was ranked number one in the world in the Times Higher Education, the university impact ratings, which measure the performance of universities against the United National Sustainable Development Goals. Can you talk a little bit about the research that takes place there at the university, including the university's commitment to the Motoranga, which is about unlocking the innovation potential of the Maori knowledge, people and resources? Yeah, I can talk a, a little bit about that. I think, you know, the, the, the university is the largest in New Zealand. It's got seven different faculties and large research institutes. So it covers all aspects kind of research. We've got an engineering faculty and medical school. Um, amongst amongst other things, I think um, there's a lot of measures in there. But I think the the main point about Mataranga Māori is that New Zealand's um, foundational document, if you like, if you're in the United States, it's the Declaration of Independence. Our foundational document in New Zealand is actually the Treaty of Waitangi or Te Tiriti o Waitangi, um, if you're a Māori, um, and that document um, described a partnership between. Uh, tangata Whenua, which is the Māori people, um, and Tangata Te Tiriti, which is the people who came to the islands later in, in, the, in New Zealand's history. And though that, that, that treaty has three main claim, main pieces around how um, the two, you know, how the two parties should work together. And it's actually living in kind of the concept of living in two worlds with different views of how things should be done and, 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 and so on. And it's one of the things that kind of makes New Zealand unique in the way in which it approaches a number of things and deals with its um, with its history and 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 in all its, its all its guises. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, for a long time, um, a lot of those rights that were conferred were ignored, um, or worse than that, trodden on and trampled. Um, but you know, as we become, you know, as you can see through the eyes now, that's now. Um, that's now changing. We're seeing a, a, a renaissance and a much, much more greater commitment to the, the three most important clauses that exist in the in Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Um, and um, that's really the, the commitment of um, uh, sort of the university and, and society at large. And actually, there's a lot to be learned from a Māori worldview, particularly as it um, talks about resources, how you manage resources, the value of people, um, the value of preserving something for not just for the next generation but or yourself, but preserving it for forever um, and the future. And we owe our existence here to and today to the people who came before us and for the people who came after us. And so Vision Mataranga has a encapsulates a lot of that knowledge, um, science, and in particular the, the scientific aspect. You have to remember that. You know, for for many many years, the um, Polynesian peoples were very very sophisticated navigators. They had an incredible knowledge of um, let's call it today we call it blue tech, right? But they had an incredibly sophisticated knowledge of oceans, and they had a very sophisticated knowledge of how you preserve things when you get to a place. And so that view of the world is increasingly important in the sustainability um, components of how we 
as, as humans need to treat um, the planet we have, we need to treat each other. And so that's really the, the focus of Vision Mataranga is to incorporate um, that knowledge and that um, methodology and that life view into everything we do. So what would you say makes uni services unique then? I, I, I don't think we're necessarily unique in, in that sense of being unique. We just have a, because every university does similar kinds of things to what we do. I think the the secret here is that we've got um, the fact that we are a separate entity to the university, which means we can be a university when we want to. And then when we want to not be a university and not have all of the things which um, perhaps universities don't like to do, they, you know, they don't like to be, they're not nimble um, necessarily. They're not, um, you know, they're very business-like, but in the business of what they do. And when they, when you ask them to do slightly different things, they, 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 they struggle to do that. And so, but having the, the, the outward-facing research um, relationships, in other words, anybody who wants to do research at the University of Auckland comes through our office, gives us an incredible line of sight into what all the research, the research engine is doing, and we can then deliberately build programs around that to take start to take the ideas as, as the research comes out of that, as the knowledge is developed from that research, we can be deliberate about then how do we passage it through to whether it's a startup or whether it's something that, or whether it's um, a piece of research that's going to inform policy or whether it's a piece of research that's going to lead to a bigger program that we can collaborate with international and national partners or whether it's um, knowledge that can be transferred through work, workforce development, for example. So, that's kind of what's unique, and I think the fact that we've got three parts of the business all together makes it makes it work. And that is, you know, our mission, our vision is ideas to impact, and there's three three main ways we do that. The first is we take those ideas and we turn them into um, good research grants, or you know, and often those are quite large, multinational or multi-institutional. That's one part of our business. The second part, which is mine, which is where we take that. Those, the results from that, and we turn them into startup companies and new products. And the third one, which is which we're coming to, I think, is what we call business units, where we we take research predominantly in things like um, public health, population health, education sectors. So, and we we, we turn that into really deliberate um, workforce development packages. So, for example, the Immunisation Advisory Commission. Centre, we um, train all of the immunisation um, staff across New Zealand. So you can imagine in COVID, that's had an enormous impact. Um, we do a lot of um, workforce development in the mental health um, staff of mental health. Um, we do um, a number of those. So, so that kind of, we call them service delivery businesses, um, which have a research and continued improvement thing based on the university or the research that's going on in those faculties, and then it's it's implemented through workforce development. If I could add something, Lisa, um, just more to, to add a little bit of clarity, in terms of uh, where Unisurface is different from a traditional tech transfer office, we don't just do commercialisation of technologies. We have many, many um, different areas um, you know, we have business development managers who work closely with the university and in turn work closely with our commercialisation team. So we've got some really close linkages between different functions, which I would argue adds some synergy um, to our work and gives us possibly um, more of an overarching and more connection points into the university and into th that research. So we're not just helping a researcher with commercialisation, we might also be helping them with obtaining funding, um, with um, connecting with industry. Um, so it's arguably a, almost a full service package that we can offer to our researchers. Well, and I think that's a great segue, Nicola, for me to ask the two of you, if you could tell me um, or tell us a little bit more about your respective teams. Sure, I, I can start. Um, 
So I'm actually part of Will's overall um, commercialisation team, but I have a smaller part of that, um, the IP team. So we manage the IP function, um, help with protection in the portfolios and interact with licensees. But I have, um, including myself, uh, four patent attorneys um, who have expertise in different areas um, from sort of, you know, mechanical engineering right through to uh, biotech and life sciences. Um, and we also have a legal exec that helps us out with the um, day-to-day running of the team. Um, so, yeah, it is it is relatively small, but um, we have, uh, I would say, a breadth of experience um, across the team that means we can deal um, with most technologies. And if not, we have contacts within the wider profession um, and we work closely with, you know, various different patent attorneys who can provide us with additional sort of technical support usually. Okay, well, you can... <laughs> I, I think it's important to add that Nicola, whilst she, her team, yeah, nominally, well, does report to me and I'm responsible for its um, uh, well-being well and performance, um, it does provide a broader service across the university um, on, on all matters IP. So, yeah, it, it yeah. has got a kind of broader mandate. So yeah, within my team, I have Nicola, and then I have a um, uh, a group of what we call commercialization directors, managers, um, and they are um, people who are skilled in the art of identifying, um, if you like, uh, key market or technical challenges, and then um, finding ideas on campus that may, may, may um, solve some of those problems, and then pack, packaging them up in such a way as they become investable entities um, either by companies or more often now by financiers. Um, we also have our own um, pre-seed and seed fund, a University of Auckland Inventors Fund, which is $20 million, which we can use as the kind of first get-going money um, for a university venture. Um, and we, so then, you know, we kind of fill, if you like, this thing called the valley of death between research and commercial um, application, and we attempt to fill that with the um, Inventors Fund, and we invest alongside a number of local seed and venture firms as well as international ones. So. Well, Will and Nicola, could you share with us some of Uniservices' metrics over the last year or last several years? Yeah, I think um, you know the, the, the key key for us is we've had a, a last year. You know, the university had its um, biggest year in attracting external research funding, um, again, the largest university in New Zealand by global standards, very small, but um, you know, it was over, over, over a quarter of a million, like nearly 300,000 Kiwi dollars, which last up to about 210, 220 US. Um, and I think the thing that we, um, you know, so and over the past five years with the fund, you know, we, we've invested around $16 million in those companies and the net asset value of those companies now stands at around about $17 million. Um, our shareholding typically is around about 10, average of 10%. So you can do the math and that's, um, you know, a number of different companies. Um, in the last five years, there's 42 different companies, which some of them have failed on the way through, but people have learned things and luckily nobody's lost too much money, but, um, on the other side, you know, lots of dreams have been made, made true. Lots of different products and jobs and economic activity has been created. Um, I think, you know, we, you can count patents and you can count licenses and, you know, we, we, we don't necessarily focus too much on counting those because you can, you can make them. What we really would rather do is focus on a dollar in and a dollar out, but also on the impact that that's had on our researchers and typically, you know, our PhD students, a lot of whom, you know, are taught to be professors, but only one in 20, less than one in 20 will have, um, less than 20%, sorry, will have careers in academia. And so there's a kind of 80% of PhD students who you have a kind of duty to provide with a different experience on campus. So we spend quite a lot of time on that. 
So I wanted to ask the two of you, um, could you tell us a little bit about how uni services support startups that come out of the university? You've mentioned a little bit about it, but um, if you could share some more detail, I think that would be really fascinating. Well, could I just start with the CIE and the work that they yeah, do in sure. terms of, yeah. So we have a Centre for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the business school within the University of Auckland. And um, uni services and particularly our commercialisation team work very closely with them. They run an entrepreneurship programme and um, out of that, um, every year there are a handful, possibly up to 10 or 12, maybe more, startups. And so we're involved with those student teams from that very early stage. And um, we so just a few things me and my team provide are um, sort of some expert hours. Um, I provide IP education and some sort of uh, startup legal education to those teams. So those are um, not always just students, but often um, majority of them are students. And so they get that very, you know, even from before they're a startup, they have um, that connection to us. And we, we have a few other programs also uh, that help particularly with those student startups. Um, we have uh, some investment committees, uh, uh, Momentum and Return on Science, that provide advice to these um, students and or startups uh, that are coming out of the university or, or being formed at that very early stage. Um, so there is a lot of, let's say, programs or touch points where those who are wanting to start a, um, up a company out of the university can access through us. Um, but, well, there's a, there's a lot more that we do, um, so I'll let you continue with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, yeah, there's, so, so, yeah, no, I think Nicholas described that. So, you know, we, we, we do focus a lot of effort in, in deliberate intention in that kind of, um, yeah, well, I think we, 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 we talk about it taking ideas and people on a journey from no idea is a bad idea through to um, a startup leaves the, leaves the university or a, or a project leaves the university. But at the same time, we provided safe exits for everybody. So there's no sense of success or failure. That's just a different journey endpoint. And so... When 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 we start at the beginning, everything is very open, very creative process, and we're sort of going through that. But if you know, if it's a student, for example, and and their their venture or their idea doesn't look like a company or doesn't, does you know what we then then done is given them some skill sets, and we then point them to you know the the careers place, and they can you know get a better job, they have a better experience, they've got a richer CV. Um, if it's an academic, we can say, well, this looks more like a research grant, so. How about we direct you to the to the people who worry about that sort of stuff? And if it's, an, you know, sometimes we just say the best thing for this is the best, the best, best impact is to publish it and write an op-ed piece in, in, in your um, in, in your favourite journal. And so, you know, what we're trying to do there is, as I say, is take the people and the idea on a journey from no idea is a bad idea to this is a commercial. App. That's our responsibility is the commercial output. But there are other methods of impact or generating impact from university research, from students getting a job, people reading papers, people doing consultancy and so on and so forth. But, but in terms of the startup, sorry, Lisa, in terms of the startup, we have a, the um, Inventors Fund, which allows us to invest in university uh, outputted startups. So, well, I'll, I'll let you yeah. give a bit more detail on that. Yeah, as I say, so the fund, you know, is so some company comes with us an idea, and what we do is we run a, um, so, so we, we run a triage process, and that triage is three three ways. Obviously, if it looks like something we can invest in, then we put it, we keep it. The other two, we send it to the right place. But then what we do is we um, we we run uh, in order to allocate the money of the inventors fund, so that twenty million dollars. We run um, a series of um, monthly investment committees. So it's not just us deciding. We use these investment committees, which we call return on science, 
And those investment committees, there's five of them, and they're specialized. And they have um, other, other investors on board. We have industry consultants. We have industry itself. Um, and they meet monthly. And anything that we're looking to invest in, we make a business case to that committee. And they advise us on whether it's a good investment and what, what we should do and what our milestones should be. Now, the important thing about those committees is that they are open insofar as if you sign a CDA, one page, it just says what you hear at this meeting, you don't tell anybody about. But if you're interested in what you hear at the meeting, come and talk to us and we'll do a separate conversation outside of this meeting. And you don't even need to turn up. They're available on Zoom. So the idea behind that is that they're a living database of um, things that we know about that we're investing in that you might be interested in. Okay. And so, because that stops this business about, well, there's all this IP sitting on the shelves, there's all these ideas. And you say, well, I could, and they say, why don't you do a database? And I said, well, I could do a database, but if I have to do a database, my people have to stop what they're doing to fill a database. Your people have to stop what they're doing to look at a database, which means that nobody does anything in the database is worthless. Rather, what we do is we anchor these meetings in time. So on the first Wednesday of every month, there is a MedTech, alternating MedTech and Ag Research Investment Committee. So if you're interested in investing or thinking about food tech or whatever, we're making anything we know about and we're making investment decisions in, you can come and listen to the committee advise us what we should do. Okay, and, and so on the first when, Thursday of every month, it's Biotech Pharma. The third Wednesday of every month, it's Digital Technologies. The third Thursday of every month, it's Physical Sciences. Okay, and so that's how we use, A, the fund to develop these ideas, but we use the process of investing as our living database of ideas that we that we have that we know about. And so that, that program, you know, I think we're pretty proud of that. We think that's a kind of unique thing that we do around the world. I've not heard of anybody else because everybody's worried about IP. So, well, okay, but actually most IP leaks from the university because the academical students don't tell us. They just publish it. Right? And so there's so much loss anyway on the margin, right? And so we, we, we've, and also people who come and if they don't behave, we just don't invite them back. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, and that's funny you should mention about the IP because I, I did want to ask you about, um, do you see social innovations? I would imagine you do in some of the, the inventions and, and discoveries and innovations that come out of there. And um, that's that's something that a lot of times doesn't have a whole lot of IP around. It might have some copyright. So um, how do you handle those? Um, I think what we do is we treat them as a, just as a business. And, you know, IP isn't a business. Um, businesses have a whole bunch of different things that make them competitive and the ability to sell or, you know, at a, at a, at a, at a margin that may, means they can be sustainable. So, you know, for us, you know, we're not that locked into IP per se. Um, there are times when it's really, really important in some areas in order to leverage the ability to raise capital. It's particularly important in the pharmaceutical biotech space. It's perhaps less so in others. Um, but we're really focusing on the the business opportunity rather than just the IP opportunity because we're going to invest. And so we look much more at the people, the team, the business model, the customer need, the match, the customer um, product fit, um, and all of those things. And IP is a component of that, but it's not the main one. Just thinking about um, the uh, original points we were talking about and um, investment. So we, so I think Will sort of described the how we use our return on science. But um, just to sort of summarise, we have you know a lot of local investment partners that we work with. We have close relationships with, and we often co-invest with. Um, plus, we have access to other funds, um, uh, IP Group, which is a Australian fund, but it's come out of the UK, and we have access to MRCF, which is Medical Research um, Fund. And so we have very close relationships with those groups as well, where our startups and our researchers can tap into those um, much larger funds. There's another aspect of that, which we also think is fairly unique. We had a, um, on those committees, we had a diversity problem a few years ago. Everybody looked like me. And that's not good. 
No, no offense, but no, it's no, not it's good. good for, for any number of different reasons. But um, so one of the ways in which we decided to solve that was to say, well, um, let's engage some of the student community. And what we did to in the in, in that we went to the business school, went to all of those different places, and um, we invited students to be part of the investment committees, so they would change the dynamic. Okay, and so we were able to look at you know capability, age, sex ethnic background and so on and so forth and apply that to the investment committees. And they, um, and we didn't call them students. They were not to be allowed to be called student committee members. They were committee members and they had exactly the same voting rights in the way in which they, and that was so successful that in changing the dynamics, the way we approached our feedback, the way we approached our questioning, the knowledge that came into those things because it was just way more up to date was just so transformational that two things happened. One is they, a lot of the um, student members actually now chair the meetings. So they're chairs of these commitments. So they front up to the, you know, the head of um, Asia Pacific. As a student? As a student, they front up and they they chair the meeting that has, you know, the, the head of Asia Pacific partnering for Merck or for um, Abvi. And they, you know, they, they, and they chair, they, they face up to deans, they face up to all kinds of, so they're amazing, and it's just fantastic. That the other thing that happened was they were so good. We decided that what we would do, we had a lot of student ventures, is we would give them their own committees. So we have a program called Momentum, which is um, student-led investment committees, whereby they are not. So there's a lot of focus on developing the entrepreneurs of the future, but we want to give experiential opportunities for people to be the governors of the future. So. People are going to decide capital allocation. How do you assess a team? How do you give feedback to a business idea? How do you then you know, do all of those things? Leadership skills, essentially. Leadership yeah. skills. Yeah. How, do you, how, do you, how do you provide all of that? And so we have a, a, this program called Momentum, which now runs around the country. So we have one you know, in all the main centers of New Zealand. And it's here. So student-led. So we're providing another part. And again, it's win workflow. So we, people have interest in student entrepreneurship. If there's anything going on, they can come to those momentum meetings and they can see the, the best and the brightest students. And often that's not just about the idea, but it's about talent acquisition. So it's a window. It's another window onto the University of Smart Smart Young Kids are coming through. Yeah, that that sounds like that program provides them with skills that if they were out in the working world, it would take them years to get those opportunities and you're giving them to them at a very early age. So you're you're helping them develop into the future leaders and and uh, CEOs and things like that. So it's amazing, that program. So I wanted to ask the two of you about corporate partners and the role there that they play in tech transfer. Can you give us some relationships that you have with some corporate partners? Well, well, I, I can talk sort of historically. We've had a lot of um, corporate relationships. And one of the things that we, and I think you know, it was basically our previous CEO in his previous life had been chief technology officer for international paper, and he'd also been chief technology officer, I think, at Tokyo. Um, and so he had a um, he, he was a member of a, a group in the US called IRI, which does research on research organizations, top 50 um, companies. And so he was very much uh, an early adopter himself when he was in corporate of open innovation, which was the kind of thing that started, I think, the guys Henry Chesborough writes a book about it. And Procter and Gamble were early adopters of that. And so I think we were the first university outside of Cincinnati, and this is way back in 2007, um, who ran a sort of open innovation campaign on campus. So over summer, we we gave um, internship positions to three uh, students, and their job was to match, to try and match um, Procter & Gamble's kind of needs list with research that was going on on campus. Now, you know, that was the right time to do that. A number of things that we're doing now in terms of our corporate partnering is the, the strategy around our startups and having the fund is actually deliberate around corporate partnering in that, you know, say, if you go back to pre-GFC days, companies would do a lot of, they would sort of buy research or buy consultancy and sponsored research programs. But they would typically take the results, and even when they were doing licensing of IP, they'd put them, they'd, they'd still run the ideas through their own R&D capability. So after the GFC, they stopped doing that, and they realized that they could just buy the they could buy startups. It's a much more efficient way, 
of innovating because not only do you, you get something that's de-risked, but you also get the people who know how to run it, the people who've designed it, um, and you get a you know you get a, a almost ready-made business unit. So, and you get some talented people. You know, so I, I use this companies that buy companies a week and the fangs. Um, you know, Facebook, Amazon, whatever they call. You know, I was at a meeting, um, an angel association meeting, a couple of weeks ago in Atlantic City, and there was, you know, estimates that these companies have still got around about six hundred to seven hundred billion dollars sitting in their corporate acquisitions budgets. None of them spend that much money a year on R and D. So, you know, there, there's very much a, a so corporate partnering for us is building a, a thriving startup ecosystem because what we find, and it's true of every time we've had an exit, is the companies that we sell are sticky. Um, they stay here. They want to see the next, you know, they don't want to miss out on the next generation of, um, of talent. They don't want to miss the next idea. And actually that's true of a lot of, you know, good ecosystems. The main one I look at, but, well, you know, the example I give on this is Pittsburgh. So you go around Carnegie Mellon, and you pit, you know, they've got all those companies in downtown Pittsburgh now, which was, you know, losing 30,000 jobs a day not so long ago. Um, and so our corporate partnering is kind of focused on that, you know, developing a robust startup ecosystem that, that, that companies want to come and look at and buy. Having said that, of course, you know, it's very important that we do have um, a number of projects. And on campus, there are a number of programs there's a thing called the Product Accelerator, which is focused on small to medium-sized enterprises who want to engage either with equipment or specialists on campus, and it's a subsidised program. They can come and get access to um, universities' capability. Um, you know, we've, we've had long-term relationships, um, and you know, increasingly we're looking at some of those are governmental and, and NGO relationships, particularly in areas like you know, the commercial world of develop, developing antibiotics, there's a lot of market failure there. And so we've got a number of, all, they, they look like corporate partnerships, but they're with people like the Global Alliance for TB, the Wellcome Trust, um, and looking at, you know, novel ways of, you know, dealing with antibiotic resistant challenges and so on and so forth. So, yeah, you can list, you know, say since I've been here, you know, we've had relationships with everybody from, you know, companies like Lockheed Martin, companies like um, uh, Intel, companies like, you know, all the way through to SMEs here. So, yeah. Have we got formal corporate partnering relationships that we, you know, put on our door and thing? No, we tend to do it on a more case-by-case basis. And it sounds like you have some philanthropic organizations as well that uh, you're involved with. It, yeah, well, we have, the university has a, a, a very... Um, it's actually quite sophisticated donorship um, program and fundraising campaigns. They, they've run two campaigns since I've been here. Um, you know, raised nearly three quarters of a billion dollars in those campaigns. Um, and part of our, you know, the philanthropy is quite a large component now of the research footprint, particularly in areas like um, we've got a center for brain research. We have some unique capability there. Um, people are obviously interested in, in that. But there's a lot of... Um, philanthropic research that's done particularly around the environment and, and obviously healthcare. So now the fun part of the podcast, can you share with us some of your success stories, whether it's successful technologies, startups, anything you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the most fun I've had was was one the company that we, you know, it takes a long time. This process takes a long time. And you talk about success, I go, well, it's a bit like, you know, you take a Chinese view of the world is too early to tell, right? But, um, you know, some things we've had fun with on the way through. So we started a company for, for, for many years, this university. So we, despite what people will see, but this, this university invented wireless power transfer. And it was way back in the 1990s. And that actually, you never read about it because everybody thinks about, you know, these things, like phones and, and cars. And so on. But actually, it's the biggest application wireless charging is it made these things inexpensive and the chips inexpensive because it allowed for clean rooms to have factory automation where there was no contact and so no dust was produced and so it meant that you could have clean rooms where instead of having people walking around with stuff you could have machines that did it and so 
at the materials handling, and that's a billion dollar a year business. And we got some nice royalties from that. But in 2006, you know, there was, we saw that, um, so I think it was 2006, it took um, the Toyota had sold them one millionth unit of a Prius. It had taken them 11 years to sell one million units of a Prius. And we thought, uh, you know, there is an electric car market coming. It's going to come. It's going to take a long time. There's going to be some resistance, but it's coming. And we thought that one of the things that we could apply is that wireless power technology that we had. And so we um, we went to talk to all the power companies and they told us what specifications it had to be. And because we had some funding then, we said, well, we gave we gave two, three scientists here, like key, key people who'd invented it back in the 90s. We gave them those four parameters and said, this is what you've got to go and do. Here's a million dollars. Come back in 12 weeks' time, um, either telling us you've done it or um, you haven't. And I said, there's one more, um, one more uh, thing you must do. It mustn't catch fire. Yeah, <laughs> please, <laughs> no fires. Please, yes. no fire. So they came back in 12 weeks with not just having done it, but um, around about another, we could say probably 20, 25 families. And as a result of that, we were able to form a company which we called Halo IPT. Um, it then went off and developed and its IP. And then it was acquired by Qualcomm, who at that time were looking for broader applications of their business model. Um, now, obviously, it's taken longer than one would have anticipated to get those cars running. But Qualcomm um, transferred their interest in this um, technology to a company called Wytricity, who was also developing IP based in Boston as well as making an investment into electricity. And, we, you know, our technology is now core to the next set of standards that are being applied. And, you know, cars, I think, with wireless power technology will start to be shipped in the near future. And as car ownership changes from owning, you know, to, you know, what the ability to charge without having to own the wire or having wires everywhere, it's going to be important, and so yeah, we you know that that's something that we're you know particularly proud of. But I think you know overall you can say well you know there's a lot of luck involved in the company's success and all that, and that's actually not down to you. I think what I'm most proud of is the processes we've put in place that have made the difference. So I'm most proud of the fact that we've got an open innovation um, investment committee process. So that nobody, you know, if anybody says, well, you've got all this IP, I so, say, well, okay, come and look, you know, you, you bring it on. Um, the, the, the change in the way in which we've approached the opportunities that, um, you know, young people are going to be better at entrepreneurship than, than, than others. And, you know, it's, it's perfect time of their life to do it. And they're the ones who are going to make a difference. And so, you think let's talk about success i you know if i look back i'd rather look at those that i had had complete control over and complete thing rather than saying you know i did a startup but actually i got lucky because you know you can have a pharma drug and let's be honest it's it's a heads or tails you're not counting unicorns no because you know we start them um some may end up as unicorns but that they will have had a lot of impact they would have had a lot of impact from other places that wasn't us um, who made them so. Um, and I think that we'd rather claim what we our real impact rather than some luck. I, I can give another um, success story if, if you'd like. Um, and that's Soul Machine. Yeah. Um, so I was involved at the very early stages um, with this one where we were working with um, Mark Sager, who is at an amazing researcher um, and had some really uh, fantastic ideas and probably slightly scary um, at times because it's in relation to um, emotionally responsive avatars. So he started to do a lot of work about um, training, um, in effect, a digital person to respond, you know, through video um, to uh, a real person's emotions. Um, and so uh, I, I can't remember dates, but it would have been a number of years ago, maybe three or four, where um, Soul Machines came out of the university um, and they are 
probably unrecognisable now today than what they were um, when they initially started up. So um, that's a that's a real star for me. I would have said out of the university, and we still have uh, involvement and connection with them. Um, our sort of researchers and students come through and into the company, so it's you know employment opportunities, but also there is research um, contracts still being done within the university for them and with them. So it's a nice, I think, ongoing collaboration that is happening there. Yeah, and it sounds like absolutely amazing technology as well. So given that, what would you say your office's two biggest challenges are? There are increasing demands on our academics' time. I'm not sure what drives it, but their ability to find the time to get some of this, let's call it extra work because of what it is, um, is probably the largest challenge. And it's particularly so in the COVID, you know, COVID environment where we've had to. So there is definitely a um, an impact there that will take a few years to work its way through. Yeah, there's um, been quite a stalling of research, um, which we've seen by a reduction in um, in sort of invention disclosures coming to us or um, where we've had ongoing research, uh, it's just a lot slower. So milestones have had to be pushed out. Um, so I would have said, I agree with you, Will, there's, you know, this in this post-COVID sort of stalling, um, we're hoping that we'll get um, some, you know, things starting to pick up, but it, the effects will last a bit longer, we believe. And then the other the other challenge we face is one of geography and also of um, our, our sort of our economic and industrial base in the fact that we this people talent so we've got plenty of, we've got we can always have more but we've got enough capital we don't just don't have human capital in particular you know to call it around the the C suite um, of people who can take these businesses and rapidly grow them. Um, and then we have a tyranny of distance. And so our major markets are overseas. So that's the main challenge. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask the two of you, does Uniservices have any programs to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you tell us a little bit more about those? I mean, we don't have any specific ones, and, and that's a challenge for us. But we have, so... Um, but again, you know, we, we've addressed some of that with our momentum and return on science programs by making them as diverse and as, you know, as, as, as representative as possible. Um, we have also um, uh, this year invested in a, in, in, in a more broader program about, I talked earlier about Teturitio um, Waitangi, about really developing a true partnership parallel models that work together alongside, and so that's another aspect. There are some programs that we do engage with, and I think there is an opportunity for us, because one of the things I would say in the community, in the investing community it's in, here in New Zealand, is that, that, that there isn't actually that strong a group of... Um, there's, a, there's an emerging group of um, women mentors and so on and so forth that pe people we can look to to develop, but... You know, I'm not really qualified to talk because I'm the problem, not the solution. So I'm going to hand that over to Nicola. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Will. No, that's fine. So um, within the university, there is a women's business mentoring and then also separately um, programs uh, and then a law mentoring. And I've been involved for many, many years on those. So that's a connection and, and, and some of my colleagues have also been involved. And it's not specifically startups or entrepreneurship or, you know, inventorship, but it is a, is, is a broader base and it um, a number of those, I know a few, a few that I've been involved with have gotten involved with the Return on Science programs. Um, one of my mentees from last year or the year before, she's actually sits on one of these committees, so I'm very, very proud about that. Um, and, you know, I I certainly helped her and encouraged her to get involved. Uh, and so it, as part of that, I've also um, 
I'm connected with uh, a number of the those who've been involved with the CIE, um, partially sort of through a, a number of touch points within these programs. And I would say, um, as a result, we are seeing, particularly with that Return on Science program, we are seeing particularly more females or other um, groups, minority groups, are actually starting to uh, develop those interests in entrepreneurship. And I know of a handful who have already said their initial thought of what their career might be have substantially changed. And and so a lot of them through this process are starting, um, are, are thinking about entrepreneurship and investment. And we've already had a number of our mem- committee members go into quite different roles to what they had anticipated. Um, so, yeah, no specific programs, but lots of linkages between programs that are um, enabling, I think, individuals to take advantage of, of those. That's fantastic. Congratulations. That's really great to hear. And I wanted to switch gears again and ask the two of you about the organizations that you and your colleagues are involved in, things like maybe LES, Autumn, ASTP. I'm curious what you're involved in and what value you think they add. Well, I can talk to all of those because I've been speakers at various conferences. I think they're fantastic. Um, I think um, communities of practice is a good way to share and a good way of um, raising all ships. Um, you know, at a, at, I think they're fantastic organisations and I think they do really, really good work. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, they should be encouraged. Uh, we send, well, before COVID, we used to send people to all, all of those meetings um, and we've always enjoyed our times talking to our um, colleagues. It's very easy this far away to become very insular. And so, you know, we need to connect, make sure that we're uh, contributing to, but also listening to best practice and ideas from others. And I'm a, you know, I'm a, I like to think of myself as a fast follower rather than an innovator. Most of the things I've, you know, done, somebody else has kind of started the general thought in my head. So, you know, that's kind of why I, what, what I value. In me. And also, you know, some... It's quite hard sometimes to be a professional member of staff in an academic environment and just being able to have a collective moan for three days is quite nice. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. How about you, Nicola? Um, yes, I would agree. Um, I think the networking and the access to resources are extremely invaluable. I think I had, when I, the first autumn meeting I went to in the U.S., um, Oh, quite a few years ago, about seven years ago now, I it blew my mind that when there were all these people doing the same stuff as us, and I learned so much and made so many great connections. So that's you know uh, completely invaluable, and also another one, um, LES. We uh, have strong connections. There's there's a New Zealand Australian chapter um, that we're regularly you know attending seminars. And, and networking and, you know, wider afield as well. So those are probably for me the two that um, I think are extremely valuable. I think, as Will said, that networking is beyond compare. Uh, to be able to make those connections with people doing the same thing and sharing stories is, yeah, it's, it's wonderful, yeah. Well, keep in mind that autumn 2023 is going to be in Austin, Texas. So if you want some good barbecue, you know, <laughs> start thinking and planning now. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there'll be many people who put their hands up for that. So, so one, of, one of our investment committee members lives in Austin. So we're all going to descend on him. There you go. You have additional motivation to go. So hopefully we'll, <laughs> we'll all get to see you there. So that would be great after all this time spent apart. But um, Will and Nicola, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? And you can't ask for more wishes. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, I've sort of had to think of this about this, and so that it's not fully formed, but um, and it, one is linked to what Will has said earlier: more more time um, for our researchers, for our people. I would like to have more time to 
provide more IP education for our researchers and our students. That's 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 sort of where my time sort of comes in and other people's time. Um, I think this this is a bit obvious. More investment funds, like really, <laughs> um, that would be fantastic. Um, and it sort of links to I, the other thing that I sort of just threw down in my notes was um, sort of closer or, or relationships with our researchers, but I think that comes back to time again. You know, if we could have more time with our researchers in order to um, that, you know. So realistically, time and money um, it would be my wishes. <laughs> I think we all would kind of like more time and money. I know, uh, I think I can honestly say for myself, I would too. How about you, Will? I would like to be able to affect more influence. I think the, the, the PhD process is a fantastic, you know, the kind of basic research that gets done effectively by PhD students and postdoctorals um, fellows sort of at that early stage of their research careers is really, is really valuable and it underpins up. But I wish that there was kind of more, um, you know, in the process of doing a PhD, PhD supervisors often just teach somebody, in order to be a professor, this is what you're going to have to do. And that's setting up a whole bunch of people effectively to fail because they're not going to do that. And I wish there was more um, pastoral care and experiential opportunities. And they don't have to just be commercial. They can be... How do you write op-eds? How do you influence policy? How do you use research? How do you communicate research? Um, uh, programs, whether those are curricular or extracurricular, alongside PhD students doing this work, because I heard an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's for true, but the chances of a PhD student becoming a professor are actually lower than working in a startup, I didn't say make the startup, but working in a startup and having an exit, right? And yet commercialization and impact is not talked about when you're a PhD student. It's all about this publication that, you know. And so, you know, we, we, we would, so it's kind of like having the best of both worlds. We're, we're not only creating people, but I actually think we'll get better professors too if we did that. So it's the ability to influence and be involved in that to develop people capability, because ultimately um, all of this is a people activity. Our assets walk up and down. Um, they're human breathing, living things. And um, to, to treat them as such and work at that. The other, the other wish I would have is that there needs to be a greater support for emerging academics, at least in our system. It's probably true the world over. But I think there's too much money concentrated, grant money concentrated in people who are over, who are, you know, over 60. And that, you know, great, fantastic. But, you know, it's not, you know, they're not the people who are going to drive the world in 2030 or 2040. It's the people who are in their 20s today who are going to do that. Well, Will and Nicola, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you both. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, I think my details are on the website, but I'd have to look. But uh, yeah, I'm on the I'm on the Uni Services website. My details are there. I'm also on LinkedIn. So am I. So the the website is uniservices.co.nz, uh, um, but I can be contacted at n.johnston at auckland.ac.nz. Um, and thank you, Lisa. It's been um, really enjoyable discussion and. I wish you well with your podcast. Yeah, Lisa, thanks very much. We look forward to, yeah, look forward to meeting you hopefully in Austin. Well, looking forward to meeting the two of you as well. And um, we're, we'll count on it. And um, thank you so much again for this opportunity. I've really enjoyed talking to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected 
get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.